Turn with me, please, to Isaiah chapter 26. Chapter 26 is where we are this morning. Some, some exciting news next weekend, next Sunday morning, um, we will have here with us a global partner, Matt and Nicole Paschel. They are serving Christ and the gospel uh, in a ministry in Budapest, Hungary, uh, as they serve, love, and minister to many refugees that have come from all over the world through that window there. So they're going to come and share with us what God is doing in Hungary and Budapest and in, in um, he also ministers in Italy and Greece, so I'm not quite sure exactly what he'll show, uh, tell us, but I'm sure it'll be an exciting time. We just gather together and share the work of the ministry as prayer partners and financial partners with Matt and Nicole. So be here if you can next week. And also, starting July 11th, uh, we're starting a new series. There's our logo that Pastor Ricky set up. Absolutely awesome. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Titus. Um, the Gospel-Ordered Church, the Apostle Paul writes this letter to young, Tim- young Timothy and young Titus, three letters actually, to uh, these two young men, they're called pastoral epistles. Titus was left on Crete, an island uh, that Paul was there preaching the gospel, a church had been established, and Paul tells Titus to set things in order. So we're calling it the Gospel-Ordered Church. We'll see a lot of the work of the gospel in this book. Very excited about it, starting in two weeks, so I encourage you to read that book as often as possible as we get ready to study that together. Meanwhile, we are in Isaiah. We're in Isaiah chapter 26 uh, this morning. We'll be in Isaiah 26 this week, 27 next week, and then again we're starting Titus. But uh, as you remember, chapters uh, 1 through 12 is a subsection of a major section between chapters 1 through 39. Chapters 1 through 12 is a, a subsection where... Isaiah has his calling, he has been called of God uh, to be a spokesman of God, for God, a mouthpiece for God as a prophet to speak to Judah, the southern kingdom. He preached the message uh, of, 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 of exposure of their sin, their covenant-breaking sin uh, before God, but also we've seen over and over this message of mercy and, and kindness and hope and restoration and forgiveness if they would repent of their sins and turn to God. Isaiah has been saying, we'll see it again today, these reoccurring themes. He's been telling Judah to stop trusting the kings and nations of other countries, or even their own king, but trust in the Lord, their God. He's the sovereign. He's the true and sovereign, final king of kings, Lord of lords. His name is Jesus, we saw that, who reigns and rules over the earth. And just to make that point more real, put a stamp on it, uh, we get to chapter 13, Isaiah shows how the Lord, the king, the reigning king, Jesus, is ruler over all the nations. And he begins with oracles we saw in chapter 13. Judgments, burdens, announcements that the the kingdoms of this world will be accountable to the king of kings. That even they who are relying on false gods, trusting in other nations to save them, will come to ruin. And this lesson was to teach the people of God, to teach us as well. To not to trust in false gods, not to rest and rely on other nations, other kings, our own nation. Because in the end, sin will be judged. 
And those cities in all the world will come to ruins as God establishes his eternal kingdom. And that's what Isaiah 24 was all about. We saw that the, the, the whole world, the whole uh, uh, the world are lawbreakers, are accountable to God for their sin. And when judgment comes, and judgment comes and falls on the nation, no one's able to escape unless the judgment falls on a substitute. And God grants salvation and restoration, uh, not by dismissing sin, but forgiving sin, not by ignoring sin, but forgiving sin through, through the atonement of Christ. He's the only escape. We'll see that today. The finished work of Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In Isaiah, subsection 1 through 12, chapters 1 through 12, second subsection is 13 through 27, which will wrap up before we go to Titus. We see now after chapter 24, this, this whole world being accountable to God, we've seen this theme rise where there's two cities that Isaiah is talking about. Two cities that have two songs. The city of man represented by the nations of people who trust themselves. They'll, they'll be cast down. They'll be destroyed. They'll be abandoned. They, they relied upon themselves. Self-help, self-exaltation, self-sufficiency. That's the city of man. But the city of God is where the reigning king will be on Zion. A place of security, a place of salvation, a place of abundance, a place of eternal life. And that makes all the songs different as well. The city of man's song will be silenced, yet the song of Judah will continue. And on the heels of chapter 24 and the destruction of the city of man, we see in chapter 25 last week, we see in the city of God and how the people of God in the city of God have multiple reasons to praise and worship God looking forward to that day. The day he will destroy all evil and establish his eternal kingdom. Things like verse 2. The wonderful things that God planned and accomplished. Chapter 25, verse 2. That he has become a stronghold for the poor and the needy. Verse 4 of chapter 25. The rich and beautiful feast. We talked about that last week. He'll make for his people on Mount Zion. Verse 6. How God will swallow up death forever. And wipe away all the tears of the suffering of his children. Verses 7 and 8. And in verse 9, the people of God will be glad and rejoice as their waiting is over. And their salvation has been granted as they waited upon God. That's chapter 25. We get to chapter 26 this morning. Isaiah begins this chapter with a song. We saw the praise of God's people in verse uh, chapter 25. Now there's a song that they will sing of all of who God is and all that God has done. We'll go through the passages when we get there, but let me just give you an outline. Oh, that's spelled incorrect. Oh, yeah, I could fix that. The, supposed to be T-H-E, my spell check. Uh, the song of trust, the supplication of reliance, and then the shield of salvation. Let me see if I got it right the next slide. Okay, we're good. The Song of Trust, chapter 26, verses 1 through 6. Hear the word of the Lord. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Verse 4, trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock, for he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, 
cast it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, and the steps of the needy. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. If the first couple of verses in chapter 26 does not well up within you a song of praise, I don't know what will, and you are going to be bored when you get to glory. This is the day. A song is sung. The city of man, which includes Moab, we saw that in chapter 25 last week, will be destroyed. It's the day that when, chapter 24, verse 23, the moon will be confounded, the sun ashamed, the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders, his people. The time of Israel's exaltation, the kingdom of Zion. The song is literally, uh, uh, says we will, we, we, will have a strong city. He will establish salvation. We are secure, for he will protect us. Look what it says, as a wall, as a bulwark, 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 that's how you say it, right? Or ramparts, as some of your translations, a, 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 a barricade, some sort of surrounding embankment. The point is clear what Isaiah is saying. They're singing a song whose cities is fortifications, our salvation in, in the city of strength. The strength of God, a complete defense. The city, walled and girded with salvation, will be utterly impregnable. For God is her defense. Jesus said, I give them eternal life. And they will never, double negative, never ever, never ever perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. We strongly proclaim here at King's Chapel that salvation, genuine salvation is not earned and therefore cannot be forfeited. It is not kept by your strength or your power. My salvation is not kept by my strength and my power, but the power and the strength of Almighty God. That's why the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter proclaimed that our inheritance, our salvation is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Can't get more secure than that. And this call in verse 2, these gatekeepers are calling. Look what it says. Open the gates. It's a vivid way of highlighting the entrance credentials into the city. Only the righteous nations can enter in. That means right means right with God, the righteous nation, the ones who are right with God. And we know from, from this chapter, we've known from 25 chapters, that their righteousness of those who enter the city cannot be their own virtue or their own merits. You can't come to chapter 26 and say, oh yeah, they've earned their way in. These walls and these ramparts of the city are his salvation. He sets up salvation. Not you, not me. He, verse 26, 1. The walls, the nation, doesn't possess their own inherited righteousness. No, it's, it's received by the one who establishes the king of glory. The king who reigns in Zion, who's prepared the city for his people. And they are ones, look what it says, that keeps the faith. Interesting, the word faith in the Hebrew is, is plural, expressing faith in its fullness, 
faith in its in its in every circumstance. And this picture Isaiah is painting is that these pilgrims who have come from a long way to enter the city have these gates now open to them as they enter into it. A righteous nation, a nation who is right with God. Isn't that why we sing? We, we sing what we call gospel-centered music. Because the gospel generates singing as the, as the gates of the kingdom are open, or as Jesus says, he, as the door of the sheephold of, of sheep has been opened by Christ. I am the door. Those who enter in will find refuge, will eat and be cared for. It's not our righteousness. It is the righteousness of Christ. It is the open door. It is the call. The gates are open. Those who have the righteousness of Christ come in. Isn't that the Apostle Paul's conclusion? After we, we studied the book of Philippians, after he, he kind of lined up all the things that he has done, his righteousness and keeping law, he's a Pharisee. He's a Bible-thumping Pharisee who knows his Bible better than I would ever know my Bible. He kept the law impeccably. And yet, after everything was said and done, he says, my rightness relationship with God being allowed into his presence did not come from me keeping the law because I'm a sinner. He says in Philippians, I count everything, all the things I've tried, a loss because of the surpassing worth, value of knowing Christ Jesus, the Lord. I count them as rubbish, dung, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, I can't do it. But that which comes through faith, the righteousness of God, that depends on faith. The city's gates are open for those who trusted Christ. Now, verses 3 and 4, we've talked about this before. I think it's the stamp of Isaiah's ministry. And that's just simply to trust. To enjoy this walled and fortified city, one thing is, is essential, a fixed disposition of trust, trusting in God. It's the opposite of what James called in his epistle, a double-minded man. Those for whom refuse to believe, those who refuse to believe the lie that, that we are somehow dependent upon ourselves and we are, we are the keys to, to ultimate success we refuse that because we want to trust in the Lord. And, and, and honestly, just honest for a minute, we sometimes, I, mean, I don't know where you're at this morning, don't enjoy the peace of God, not resting in the peace of God, because our eyes and our thoughts, our desires, our satisfaction is placed on trusting other things. Anxiety and worry have a field day when we are trusting other things. But, there, but Isaiah says, there is perfect peace whose mind is stayed on God. Verse 3, you see that? That word stayed means leaning upon, depending on, resting on God. You see, humble dependency causes us to have a peaceful trust in God, in God's abundant strength. God is exhorting us this morning to trust him. For God is like a solid rock. Look what it says. Eternally stable and unmovable. If we want to find peace that truly lasts forever, he's the only stable, he's the only reliable source. 
to depend on. Shouldn't we then trust in him? Shouldn't we then, shouldn't we then sing of the greatness of God, our rock, our savior, as this passage is singing? That's the issue, right? Trust is the issue. It's been the issue throughout the chapters. So I guess a week has gone by. <laughs> Let me ask you this morning. You don't have to raise your hands within, between you and the Lord. Is there something right now on your heart that's stirring that you need to trust God for right now that you have no control over? Are you worried about and anxious about things that God is calling you to leave in his hands? You've done all you can. You've taken responsibility but you're waiting on God. You need to trust him in it. What will be your rock this morning? Nations, kings, leaders, wealth, prosperity, personal possessions, or the eternal sovereign God of salvation? Ed Young writes this, It is a mind that wavers and changes with every shifting wind of doctrine, for it has no firm foundation upon which to rest. Those who don't trust, right? When it reposes upon the Lord, though, however, it abides firm and constant, preserved in his perfect peace, for it rests not upon the changing sands of human opinion, but upon God, the rock eternal and unchangeable, end quote. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, everyone who hears my word, my words, the, wor- the words that I'm speaking and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain fell, floods came, winds blew, beat the house, but it did not fall. Why? It has been founded on the rock. But we know what happened to the fool, right? Who builds his house on the sand. The winds come, the rain falls, the floods come, the wind blows, and what? The house is beat up and it collapses. Open the gates, come in, trust the Lord. Now verses 5 and 6, as we close this section, is the result of God's open gate. it's the result of God's open gate to to the fortified city. What happens when the gates are open for salvation? You see, God promised, what God promised, he says he will do, and establish his glorious kingdom, he's going to humble, we've seen this over and over again, humble the proud in heart. He's going to lay low the arrogant, he's going to cast to the dust the self-sufficient, so that those who are poor in spirit, I believe, as well, can enter into the gates. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they are the kingdom of God, Jesus tells us in Matthew. Isaiah says, look, it is better, verses 5 and 6, it is better to be among the poor and the lowly who will triumph than to be among the mighty who will be triumphed over. Isaiah is praising God for what he will do, giving the humble and the, proud and the, uh, uh, the broken a cause to trust him. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. Verse 5, he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, and the foot tramples. You see the poor coming in as God opens the gate and allows them to come in. The Bible says that we ought to have the mind of Christ. The Bible says that a mind that is set on the flesh is Romans 8. The mind that is set on the flesh, that which, the flesh is that which opposes God, that wants to live independent of God. The mind that is set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is what? Life and peace. True peace comes when we have confidence in God. True peace comes when our mind is set on God. 
True peace comes and we wait upon the Lord. Paul told the church of Philippi to think on things that are true, that are honorable, that are just, lovely, pure, excellent, those things that are praiseworthy. And then he says, and the God of peace will be with you. The song of trust. Are you trusting the Lord today? Am I trusting the Lord today? Now this next section deals with chapters 26, 7 through 19. Kind of a longer section. A little hard to follow. Um, Isaiah's kind of, I was telling Pastor Chris this morning, he's kind of just, at least to my eyes anyway, just kind of putting a lot of stuff out there. So let, let's kind of walk through this and see if we can't uh, really see what, what, what he's saying. And, and I think we could sum it up by saying Isaiah now in these next verses shows us the complete defeat of the enemies of God, right? the enemies of, of God, God's kingdom, God's ways, God's righteousness, and contrast that with the, with the praise of those who trust God and enter into this kingdom. And, and, he, and, he, and he shows us this with this, these pleas, this prayer, this supplication, as now things change in verse 7. And you'll see over and over, I circled it in my Bible, I don't know how many there are, it looks like there's at least 15. You, yours, you, you, your, you have, you have, you have. And everything, it's a, it's a supplication that uh, is being uh, you know, brought up and, and, and brought to God. So verses 7 through 10, let's look at that uh, for a moment. The people of God are calling out to God as they, they seek and yearn for his righteousness. And it turns out that this righteousness comes to them through discipline, through judgment. Verse 7. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, in that path, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desires of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of the upright, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. Now, in a land that had rough roads up and down mountainside, the best thing you could hope for is a straight, flat, level street road. And notice that the, the, the way the road, the way of the road was level solely because of the character of the one who fashioned it. You make level, verse 7. Right? You, the righteous one, the perfect one, the one where there is no darkness, no crookedness, no twisted way. God himself. And therefore, a people are called to walk this road that was level and straight. Matyar, the, the commentator, says this. The righteous are those who are right with God on the ground of faith. The voice of faith says that the path they walk is level. Heating straight for the target. Smooth and easy to negotiate. Walking with the Lord. Verse 8, in your paths, your judgments, we wait for you. The righteous, those of, of faith, believe and trust God. He'll, he'll, he'll achieve his purposes and accomplish his promises to bring into existence this future time where the road of righteousness will be smooth. How? Through judgment. Hmm. 
I thought about that first, and I thought, well, what, what, all of us are walking this path. <laughs> Maybe you're not like me. Um, I, I, I'm, 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 I'm kind of swerving when I go. <laughs> you know, I, I know the road I'm supposed to walk. I know the things I'm supposed to do. I go to the left or the right. I know what he has decided what is right. He's the righteous one, but I wander. In your path of your judgment, of your discipline, of your correction. I think that's what Isaiah means when he says in the path of your judgment, there's correction. I, I know there's a way, but I, I, I tend to lean on one way or the other. And even in the midst of judgment, though, look at what he says. I, I love this. Verse 9, verse, end of verse 8, too. Your name I'll remember, desires of my soul, I yearn for you, and I'll seek you. See what he says? So even in this pathway, we're waiting, we're yearning, and we're seeking you. To, to, to wait on God does not mean, you know, just kicking your feet up. To, to wait on God in Scripture means we're waiting in confidence. Not just waiting and being tossed to and fro, as James says. We're waiting in confidence. There's, there's a hope. I'm waiting. There's an assurance. I'm waiting. There's a confidence that God will demonstrate. God will see me through. God will show me his ways. God will be faithful in his providential timing, not mine. How many of us, don't raise your hand, <laughs> waiting's hard. Waiting's difficult. And the rest of the pastor elders are thinking, yeah, Lou. Billy's laughing. It's time of waiting. It's not, it's not passive, it's active. It's that time we have to go, ah, oh, there's nothing else I can do. That's hard for a guy like me. I'm a doer. Give me the list. There's nothing I can do. I have to wait. And here's the question. When we wait upon the Lord, are we being active? Are we waiting? And I think that's what the text is saying. Are we, are we yearning for him in our waiting? Are we yearning for him in our waiting? Are we, are we yearning to know him better while we are waiting? Are we seeking him? Are we desiring him to know his way, to know his word better while we are waiting? I get distracted. I admit it. It can be distracting. I'm looking for other options. How can we do this? All right, I've waited. It's been five minutes. Next, let's figure out a plan. In fact, worry, which happens a lot when we're waiting, right? Greek word comes from two words, being torn in different directions. You ever feel that way? I want to wait. I want to do. I'm trusting him in this, but here I am feebly trying it on my own. So there's, there's a separation. There's this being torn in different directions. Therefore, I believe the only way, while we wait on God, that we can earn... The only way that as we're waiting on God to yearn after him, to seek him in the midst of waiting, is if we have this laser focus on the glory of God in the midst of what we're waiting on, right? If we, we focus rather on our own, our own comfort, our own happiness, but on the glory of God, the incalculable worth of Christ, the satisfaction of our, of, our, of our lives will be Him, 
than, than anything in all creation. And finally, we, we'll wait. We'll seek his face, seek his glory. We're waiting on him. He gets glory. We get joy. And then we'll, he will reveal to us his uncompromised purposes for our life. Waiting's hard. But waiting continues. Verse 9c, the second part of 9c. When your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants then learn righteousness. Hmm. Judgments of God are implemented upon the earth. Those who live on the earth now learn through justice, through, through discipline, through his righteousness, learn what justice and righteousness really are. Let's be honest. When, when, when we're disciplined, when we see the judgments of God, we are learning and it enables us to understand him better, to see him better. And that's the purpose, right? So we can share in his holiness, Hebrews tells us. When we are left to ourselves in our own unrighteousness, in our own rebellious ways, in our own sin, we generally, I guess today's the day of honest evaluation, we generally just continue in our sin. <laughs> I'm not the only one. We put the things of God out of our mind. We're going along just fine. And then God's lack of discipline or choosing not to discipline us can be then seen. Not a big deal. Look at verse 10. If favor, that's grace, is shown to the wicked, I'm I'm, going to pour grace upon you. He, the wicked, does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. The rebellious one misrepresents divine grace and mercy. When the wicked are permitted to continue, they get to the place where God is either indifferent about my sin or he doesn't have the power, authority to discipline, discipline me and my sin. That's a sad place to be. That's a, that's a hard place to be. So he doesn't learn righteousness. He will not see the majesty of the Lord. He doesn't comprehend the beauty and the glory and the work of God. Don't be that person this morning who thinks, you know what, I'm just going to live this way. And even though God's grace is being poured out on you, you're thinking, ah, it doesn't really matter. It is the love of God that leads us to repentance. Peter said this when it comes to the judgment of God. On the earth. He said, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises of judgment, as some count slowness. Where are you, Lord? Really? He says, But he's patient toward you. You hear this morning? He's patient toward you. Have you confessed your sin, repented of your sin, and become to Christ? If not, God's being patient for you. Toward you, you're here. You're hearing the message of salvation. God is being patient toward you, he says. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come or to reach repentance. The chastising of God has that benefit of leading us to repentance. God disciplines us, Hebrews 12, for our good, to share in his holiness. At the moment, all discipline seems painful, not pleasant, but it later reveals, uh, excuse me, yields the fruitful, peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Isaiah is saying that grace can 
actually be counterproductive for the rebellious ones. Hmm. Remember, the nations believed that they were doing their own bidding. They were destroying Judea, rushing Assyria, was, was destroying Syria, was destroying uh, um, Moab, and all these other nations on their own prideful way, doing what I want to do when I want to do it. And God is saying, despite all that, there's going to come a time where the world will know what righteousness really is. God will rise up against the wicked on behalf of God's people and make the consequences of their sins really clear. Verse 11. Isaiah is distressed by this. Oh, Lord. (laughs) That's going to happen? We've seen Isaiah being affected by the destruction of people. Oh, Lord, your hand is lifted up. They don't see it. Let them see your zeal. The zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. Oh, Lord, you will obtain, ordain, excuse me, peace for us. For you have indeed done for us all our works. The rebellious ones are closed to the things that God is doing. They don't see his hand in this situation. And Isaiah is saying, let them see it as you care for and love and provide for your people. Let them be envious of what you're doing among your people. Now, that's a good word for the missionaries of Christ. If you're a Christian, you're a missionary. As as things happen, as hardship takes place, people are going to see the kindness and the goodness of God in your life as you rest in him, as you trust him in the midst of that. I did a baptism. I don't know how long ago it was. But a, a, a woman here came to faith through the death of her niece, young niece, and I knew the story, obviously. And um, she just saw how this family was just dealing with this tragedy and just loving the Lord, trusting in the Lord. I knew the story. I've been here for testimonies. Uh, for baptism, we do testimonies. And I knew the testimony. I heard the testimony. And as the testimony was being read, I'm in the tank with her. I just happened to look over in the front seat. And the niece that passed away, mid-teens, The mother was there just weeping. And here's this woman in this tank, just giving her life, just giving her life to Christ. Don't don't close your mind to the things that God is doing. Open your heart. And as you live your life for the glory of God, people will see. And Isaiah is saying, they're not going to listen. Do what you need to do. For you have ordained peace. Let them look with envy. Let, the, let people see, man, you, you're really trusting in the Lord. Yes, come, trust him. God has done the work. God is doing the work. Verse 13, O Lord, our God, other lords beside you have ruled over us, but your name alone we will bring to remembrance. They are dead. They will not live. They are shades. They will not arise to the end. You have visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them, but you... Have increased the nations, O Lord. You have increased the nations. You are glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. You know, when I first read that, I kind of chuckled to myself. I'm like, so 
Israel, you're saying you're the only one we remembered? I'm like, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> I'm like, before I judge them, I want to relate. Because like, how many times we're like, yes, Lord. And then we find ourselves, you know, struggling in our faith. One commentator said this. He said, in spite of all their past oppressors and in spite of periods of idolatry, talking about Judah, Israel, they will always trust only Yahweh as their God? This could be called an optimistic revisionist view of past failures in Israelite history. I kind of chuckled. I'm like, yeah, we don't, we don't want to remember that stuff. You alone. The point I think is making is, yes, we've been down some roads. Yes, we've been disciplined. Yes, the judgments of God, our path. We get all that, but you know what? We're still going to call upon the name of the Lord. We're still going to remember him, right? People, we need to be steadfast and trust. No matter what brings things come our way, we need to trust the Lord. And we are more like that father in um, one of the gospel stories. I don't, I don't remember which, uh, which gospel is in, but you remember Jesus heals. says, I'll heal your son if you believe. And he's like, I believe, Lord. And it's just the sound of that came out of his mouth. He probably in his mind thought, oh, no. And he said, what? Help me in my unbelief. <laughs> That's what we need. Help me in my unbelief. And he's overlords, verse 14. The dead. They're, they're not around. They no remains. In fact, their memory is, is gone. They're memorying God. The, the land has shrunk. See that as well. But your kingdom, Lord, you are glorified. You are glorified, verse 15. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. Their land is shrinking. Their memory has been forgotten. You, O Lord, are remembered. Their land is no more our land. And I believe in the millennial reign of Christ. The whole promise that was given to to Abraham will be fulfilled. His land will expand. Their land will shrink. We will remember the Lord. We won't remember them. This is not Israel's doing, family. This is the Lord him doing it. This is the Lord doing it. In this last part of this section, verses 16 through 19, we have the prayer of God's people. And, and, they're, and they're talking about the, the, the discipline. Again, with judgment, discipline, righteousness. These are themes in this section. O Lord, in distress, he says in verse 16, they sought you, the people of God. They, they poured out a whispered prayer. Sometimes we can just whisper our prayers. When your discipline was upon them, the, the serious distress and discipline upon them created this writhing cries of pain. First they say in verse 17, it was like a, a woman in false pregnancy, a false pregnancy, goes into labor, but delivers the wind. Look at verse 17. Like a pregnant woman, I think I have the next verse, like a pregnant woman who rises and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth. So were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we ride, but we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Now, I've never been pregnant before. Don't plan on it. Lady, you can correct me after the service. But I'm, I think it's safe to say, I want to be careful, what helps women, okay, correct me later. What helps women get through the labor experience and the pain is the joy of the baby, right? That's fair to say. It's not like, oh, it's a meatloaf, this ain't fun, right? No. <laughs> it's a baby. And I've seen the pictures of the moms just crying. My daughter went through labor about 36 hours, you know what I mean? And then you hold that baby and you think, 
Ah, right? Beautiful, worth it. Not here. As he's using that imagery and saying, you, you went through all that. Grief and struggle to produce nothing. I think what Isaiah is talking about is their selfish and their prideful ways of trying to save themselves produces nothing. That, that's what, it, it, it's come to nothing. Self-salvation will come to nothing. You need a savior. His name is Jesus. Verse 19, finishing up the section, and we'll, two more verses and we'll close. One of the very, one of the very clear, clear um, passages on the resurrection of the dead. Verse 19. Your dead shall live. There's a promise in the midst of brokenness. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light. And the earth will give birth to the dead. Resurrection. Resurrection. Now, if you study the Old Testament, you'll know that resurrection, hell, heaven, all that afterlife is, is somewhat not as clear as in the New Testament. It's called progressive revelation. As, as the New Testament comes in and God didn't just drop the Bible from the sky, uh, as Jesus comes on the scene and teaches more about it, his resurrection himself teaches us about it, the apostles, we learn a lot more about it later on in the New Testament. But here in the Old Testament, here he gives a clear understanding that they will rise, that the people of God will rise. I believe it's a literal resurrection he's talking about here. Some people think, ah, it has to do with a nation. Uh, he's been talking about the nations. I, I don't think so. I think, I think the view here is a bodily resurrection from the grave. That's what I believe. Because he talks about the dew. Look what he says. The dew des- descends in, um, let me turn the page here. I get that. For your dew is a dew of light. And I think what he's talking about there is, in, in ancient Israel, uh, the, the dew was, was, was helped actually the beginning with the plants. It has water. When it was not a rainy season, the dew is helpful for uh, moisture for the crops to grow. God would come to the Israelites bringing refreshment and vitality to those who have died. Precious in the sight of the Lord, the psalmist says, is the death of his saints. And what Isaiah is saying is in the midst of all this, the dead will rise. The dead are not abandoned. They belong to the Lord. And once again, we see this destruction, this judgment, and we see this hope and resurrection and life with God. Once again, and it's met with what? Joy. Songs of joy, he says. Awake and sing for joy. (laughs) It is the work of God. Is the work of God. Oswald writes this. Chapter 25, as in chapter 25, resurrection is seen as the final answer to all of earth's questions. If it were true that death conquers all, there would be no reason to live a life faithful and committed to God. It would make so little difference in the outcome of the world events, but death does not conquer all. Those who have done, excuse me, those who have gone down into the dust 
in death will rise and the earth will give up the dead and then it will be demonstrated that the life of faith was not in vain, end quote. Jesus said what? I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus did not say, I know a lot about it. Jesus did not say, hey, I'm going to come back from the grave and therefore I'll give you information, although some of that, you know, is true. Jesus didn't even say, listen, I have authority from my Father to raise people from the dead. Again, true, but that's not what he said. He said, I am the resurrection. There's no life apart from me. No resurrection, no conquering death apart from Christ himself. And resurrection is a reality because Jesus is the ultimate reality. And although this future resurrection is sure, a pass of righteousness, but for now, look what it says, God's people must hide for a little while until the storm of God's judgment passes. Verse 21 and 22. 20 and 21. Come, my people, enter your chambers, Shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself for a little while until the fury has passed. Verse 21. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and it will no more cover its slain. The call and the command of God here is to find shelter, to take cover Kind of reminiscent of Noah, right? Rains are going to come. Destruction is going to come on the earth. You build a boat. Never rained before. People think you're crazy, but you do it. And, and you, if you obey, you, you'll escape the flood. Lot, leave Sodom. Hebrews, sacrifice a lamb. Put the blood over its doorsteps. Judgment's coming. Take shelter, Right? Each of those cases is important to recognize that it is the grace of God among them, to them, that spared them. No one righteous, not one. The outpouring of God's fury is poured out. No one escapes, only those who take shelter and only those whom God's grace covers. When God comes out of his place, punishment upon the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. Who among us today, don't raise your hands again, but who among us today says, come Lord, come judge the nations. Come, come judge me. I'm ready for judgment. Not me. <laughs> Not me. Lord, I'm safe. I haven't done anything wrong in the past two seconds. I have loved you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I have loved all my neighbors as myself. 24 hours a day. Seven days a week. Yeah, I don't think so. Isaiah says that when God visits in fury, the earth will disclose this blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain, crying out in vengeance as it was, as Abel's blood in Genesis 10, uh, 4. The earth will, will no longer hide the full extent of his fury will come. Sin, rebellion, and iniquity will be revealed. And those of faith will see the hand of God, the judgment of God for their sins. But they also know that something's going to take place when it is over. As long as the 
fury, wrath, and indignation of God remains. They are to hide in the chambers, await their salvation. Uh, clearly teaching us that we are, we are waiting and trusting and, and hoping in God that his deliverance is solely of his power, his authority. But he will come upon the land. In fact, we're going to go to 27 verse 1. Let me read that last verse for you. In that day, we're talking about the same thing. It's a bad um, um, uh, separation of chapters which didn't come for long time after the Bible was written. In that day, that same day the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. On that day, when God will finish, uh, visit and punish all his enemies, the time will come, sin and iniquity will be punished. And, and Isaiah is teaching us that God has the final say, that God will throw down all opposition against them in quite a weird way, in an odd way. Chapter 27, verse 1, is a mythological story. A mythological story that is very well known in the, in the uh, Near East, in antiquity. And Isaiah is not, uh, let me tell you right now, he's not adopting this mythological worldview of this Leviathan, this, this, this dragon. He's not saying that God will actually fight these mythical monsters or somehow he's been influenced by this story. No, Isaiah is employing terms, sort of a, a, of a figure of speech, we do it all the time, from the, this mythological story for an illustration. We do it all the time. Strong imagery to say that God will reign and rule over all the world. He will oppose every sin. He will destroy all those that are opposed to him. And he does so by using this Leviathan story. And actually takes this fake mythological story and he brings much more meaning <laughs> than the stories of the, of the ancient Near East. God is sole authority. God is the sole sovereign of the universe. And while evil and destruction now threaten us, and Lady Blind, is, excuse me, Lady Justice doesn't seem to be that blind, God will triumph. There'll be dark times. And you know what? Quite honestly, we could look at this and we could say, you know what? This giant monster really is sin, death, and hell for us that God will destroy through the work of his son. But God, but God will end right here. Hide, come, verse 20, my people, enter the chamber, shut the door. Just, just vision that, enter the chamber, come into the room, shut the door. Hide yourself for a little while until the fury has passed by. There's a man by the name of Donald Gray Barnhouse. He's a preacher, teacher was, he's home with the Lord. Very well known in Philadelphia. First, uh, 10th Presbyterian Church in Philly. He tells this story about a day when a, when a farmer saw a fire had ignited and the fire was really catching and, and the wheat fields that he had grown was, was, was burning. And the fire was heading towards his barns, barns that were filled with grain. So what he did was he ran quickly and he lit a backfire, started a fire somewhere else so that when the fires meet, it would end. Well, the fires did meet, and the fires did subside, and the barns and the grain were saved. 
And afterwards, the farmer went out along the field and he was walking towards the barn on the, on the, on the smoldering ashes. And there he discovered, he looked down, uh, one of his large hens that was laying there, black, charcoal burned. Sadly, he looked at the hen. He saw it was burnt, dead. He just, with his foot, just moved it. And as, he, as his body, this charred body turned over, ran out were four baby chicks that this hen covered under her wings to protect from the flames. Her sacrifice saved the young ones. Such is the work of the cross. A place where the love of God dealt with the justice of God, where God's mercy was extended and God's wrath was satisfied. Three days later, though, he rose from the dead, showing the world that satisfied, that God was satisfied with his sacrifice. The Lord's sacrifice saves us. We are safe in his arms. In his nail-pierced hands, we find shelter from the fury of God. Why? Not because it doesn't exist, but because the fury and the wrath that we rightly deserve fell on the Savior as our substitute dying in our place. It is God himself who will successfully hide his people under the shadows of his wings in his shelter for that day of trouble. Psalm 57, 1. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadows of your wings I will take refuge till the storm of destruction pass by. Are you trusting the Lord today? What do you need to trust God with today? Have you come to the place of faith and trust? Are you, are you resting in your own righteousness or are you resting in the righteousness of Christ? Do you understand that God himself sent his son to protect you as a sacrifice to shield you from his wrath. And he bore the full, the full penalty for our sins as he sacrificed himself on the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ loves you. We pray that you come to know him and love him. And if you know and love him, will you sing as the band come on up? Will you sing to his glory? Will you worship him in all that he has done? Maybe today is just a day where you need to strengthen your faith and trust. Not in yourself, but in Christ. So we're going to sing. We're going to worship. We're going to praise him for all that he has done. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for your salvation. Lord, our hearts break for those who don't know you. Help us this week to, to not be silent but to, to share your love with others, to share the good news of the gospel with others. Help us to do what you've commanded us to do, make disciples of all nations. And Lord, we don't want people to perish. We know you don't want people to perish. But Lord, you have chosen to use us as your vessels, missionaries with a purpose, to demonstrate and declare the gospel, to call people to repentance and faith, to trust the Lord Jesus Christ, who willingly went to the cross died a gruel death, took on our punishment, died in our place, victorious from the grave. So, Father, we worship you. Empower us today to worship you and to live on mission, we pray. In Jesus' good name, amen.